Gold Singers on Tramadu Express. Come and join us on cover many other mysteries on Dramadur Express every Sunday, 11 till noon, only on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have sitting with me here in the studio, Robin Hemley. Uh, Robin, welcome to Living Writers and WCBN. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, well, it's it's good to have you here. I should say we're taping the show the 20th of September, 2012, um, and you're a man of many books. Um, <laughs> We've, we've got three of them on the table here. Reply All Stories, um, just out this year with Indiana University Press. That's uh, right. Thanks to Mandy Clark for sending me a copy. And we've also got, um, we've got other ones here, too. A Field Guide for Memoir, Journalism, and Travel, Immersion Writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the thanks to Amanda Sharp um, at the University of Georgia Press uh, for this one. And then also from Gray Wolf Press, um, Turning Life into Fiction. Um, Thanks to Aaron Kotke, always always brilliant from Grey Wolf as well. Um, so so many things. You're 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 writing all the time, and you're writing everything. And I just even heard um, a short uh, interview with you where you said you're writing poems. Yeah, that's right. And t- too. So yeah. maybe maybe we'll hear a little bit of everything today. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you're a man of many writing hats. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, before we go further, I'll read your short bio on the back of reply all does that sound sure like a good one yeah pick from the hat right robin hemley is director of the nonfiction writing program at the university of iowa and author of seven books we've named some of them his essays and fiction have been published in the new york times new york magazine and the chicago tribune and also McSweeney's, mm-hmm. um where you were sending dispatches from manila that's correct yeah <laughs> i i spent um well, I spent a lot of time in the Philippines in that year. I was in. I, I had a Guggenheim Fellowship, and I spent the year in Manila with my family. And I decided to see about you know writing some dispatches for McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and they said sure. So it was it was a lot of fun. So did that. you pitch them the idea, Robin? I did. They, I had a friend. My you friend, were going anyway. Yeah, my friend Philip Graham uh, had done a. Um, dispatches from Lisbon. He had been in uh, Portugal, and it was a beautiful uh, series of dispatches. And um, 
And so I asked him if he could get me in touch with his editor and if they'd be interested. So I, I, uh, I wrote one as a sample and they liked it. So I went with it. You know, they went with me, I should say. And uh, it was really in- an interesting experience because I was, although I'm very familiar and was very familiar at the time with the Philippines, still sort of landing in another culture that's not your own sort of birth culture and writing about it, there you know, definite minefield. So I was worried at first, oh, you know, am I going to offend someone? And and after the the reaction to the first uh, story, uh, I saw that I actually had a really great following fr- among uh, Filipinos and Filipino-Americans and all the sort of diasporic uh, Philippine community around the How world. How did you know that? Did, were people writing you letters oh, yeah. or commenting on the site itself? Or? Yeah. Actually, I, I also instigated a major scandal in, in, in the this. Philippines <laughs> um, uh, through one of my dispatches. Uh, this is, yeah, this is kind of a crazy story. Um, I... Uh, about long around the seventh or eighth dispatch that I did, um, I had my book Do Over coming out, and um, and I wanted to see if it was going to be available in the Philippines, and so it was coming out through Hachette or Little Brown, and so I met with the Hachette representative in Manila, and she said, you know, I'm sorry, but we're unable to get any of your books, and I said, why? And she said, well, actually, we can't get any books right now um, because they're all held up. By customs, um, she said that um, she told me about um, that traditionally uh, there were no taxes ever paid on imported books in the Philippines or in a lot of other countries because of a UN agreement signed in 1953 called the Florence Agreement, which just said that books won't be taxed. Um, and uh, because of the book Twilight, it was such a, a phenomenal success that the customs officials in the Philippines, who are notoriously corrupt, um, were uh, incensed that they were not getting any money out of... Uh, Their cut of yeah, Twilight. Yeah, exactly. So they... <laughs> the bounty. They basically presented a, um, a, a, a sort of an intimidating proposition to the booksellers of the Philippines and the bookstores. They said, um, so we're going to hold all your books and you're going to pay taxes on them uh, and the bookseller said, "Well, we've never paid taxes." And they said, "Well, you're going to you're going to pay them now, or else we're going to just keep them in a warehouse, um, and we'll charge you for keeping them in our warehouse." And so one way or another. One way or another. And um, so I kind of got hold of this story, and I thought, <laughs> "Well, it's not really my battle." Um, so I contacted my some authors in the Philippines and said. You know, you you know, I was there. I said, "Why don't you, some someone should write about this?" And no one took me up on it. So I said, "Okay, I'll write about it." So I I wrote this um, kind of sarcastic and ironic uh, piece. It's still available on the web called "The Great Book Blockade of 2008," I believe it was, or 2009. I can't remember at this point. But anyway, um, and I called it "The Great Book Blockade," and within a day. It had gone, as they say, viral all over the world, especially... Did you post that with through McSweeney's mm-hmm, or... Okay. Mm-hmm. I posted it through McSweeney's, and they um, they published it, and it became this huge scandal. And so booksellers all over um, the Philippines and all over the world started um, getting involved, and, and, and authors, too. Even uh, Neil Gaiman uh, 
was posting about or tweeted about and so all his followers and all these you know it just became this amazing scandal and i i uh i I was it's uh, another thriller in manila basically (laughs) and so uh it, it it got a lot of press coverage in the Philippines and beyond, and then um, what happened was within a month uh, they had uh, rescinded that uh, threat, and even the president of the Philippines at that time, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, said that they wouldn't tax books. So for a while, at least, then it it it, it basically changed things back. So it was a great, I mean, it was a crazy outcome. I never intended that to happen, but it was, it was kind of, uh, it felt good. <laughs> you, you changed the world. Not, not permanently, <laughs> unfortunately, and not that big a, a thing, but, um, but it was, it was still amazing how the internet can, can, it was a, for me a direct lesson in how uh, you think that you're writing for a very small group and some, something will just catch fire. And and the fact that you actually wrote the piece because your other the friends I think it's also interesting that you you were aware probably and that's probably why you're writing these other these textbooks like the, a field guide for immersion writing like you were conscious that maybe someone else should take up the story since yeah. you, you were non-native right but well I figure then, I, I you know give people a chance to do it and then uh, you know I, I it just made me angry and i'm sure it made them angry too but they were very busy or who knows but in any case um it it was it was one of the few times that i've written something that had well certainly never had that kind of reaction before you know so but i'm happy you know if people if if um people would you know write things like that that would um you know have some affect some kind of change of course yeah yeah, it's so. What is your discipline like as a as a writer? Because it sounds like I mean I know that you're very productive. We've got the proof here before us, and and there's more more out there. Books that aren't even on the table today, <laughs> literally. But um, well, on your Kindle they are. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so what? It, what is it like like for you? Like in your your day to day with this this writing? Well, I write every day um i think the for me the best thing that ever happened was was in terms of my writing was uh the laptop because i can write anywhere and i do i i go on, i write on planes i write um you know out in the country i can just sort of take my writing desk with me you know and so um so i'm always writing now i i uh, find the the laptop you know i can i can store everything all, all my notes and and so there's no excuse for me not to write so uh, i like to write in between um you know uh, I- even in between classes or something like that i'll i'll if i'm obsessed about a book or obsessed about a project i'll i'll be writing on it all the time so seriously so you're at the university of iowa you've got like a you're, you've got a couple of classes going mm-hmm. and you do you stop like you'll be I don't write Wherever in class, but <laughs> <laughs> I'd like us all to do some in-class writing now. <laughs> I have heard of writers <laughs> who've done that notoriously, but I, I won't name them. But uh, but uh, uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But uh, but I don't know if it's true or not. But I I think um, and yet they are notorious. <laughs> yeah, no, but no. I, I mean no, I I I 
obviously try to compartmentalize these things and you know i'm not and and when i'm teaching i'm teaching and so but your headspace like you're able to shift gears it sounds like yeah i'm pretty or, good at compartmentalizing things because i do i mean i direct a, a writing program too and um i also um you know i have a family and i i i'm doing all kinds of things so i i pretty much i have to be fairly disciplined about that that's what i was figuring yeah. so but and your process is like even in between like right in between and and anywhere yeah i mean again if i'm obsessed about a project so what is this obsession then like what qualifies as obsessed well you? um you know when you're when I'm in the beginning stages of a project, uh, whether it's a story or an essay or uh, a book, uh, especially, it, it's easy to distract myself from it because I'm still figuring out the basics. Um, but once I've figured out the basics and I've really uh, immersed myself in that project and I maybe I'm done with the first draft or whatever, then I can really see the shape that's developing and I want to really get it out there. I want to bring it to fruition. And so um, that the obsession is wanting to tell the story or tell the, you know, whatever I'm, I'm doing. And so part of it is also I don't show it to people. I don't talk about it to, I mean, I try not to talk about it to too many people so that I have a the desire to, um, to get it out in the world is something that, that compels the writing or propels it. Right, because sometimes if you're talking about it, that releases it somehow exactly. instead of letting the tension keep you. Yeah, my mother was a writer, and she. Um, oh, one of the things she told me was, "Don't talk about what you're writing. Don't don't do that because it dissipates the energy." You know, and I think it's really true that your subconscious mind really can't tell the difference between how you tell the story, whether you tell it orally or whether you tell it on on paper or on a computer. And so um, if you release that, there is a danger in it just feeling stale. Yeah. yeah. And done. Accomplished. Done. Accomplished, somehow. yeah. And of course, it isn't accomplished. It's just been told. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, so, Robin, we're going to take a short break. We'll hear some music. You're picking the musical, so you picked some musical selections for us today. We've got Willy nilly. Yeah, willy nilly. <laughs> That's how we like to do it here on Living Writers. <laughs> but we're, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Thanks for being here today in, in the studio. Robin Hemley is here. We've got his collection of short stories, um, Reply All, um, A Field Guide for Immersion Writing, um, Memoir, Journalism, and Travel, and also Turning Life into Fiction. Um, and maybe we'll hear some poems. I'll try to twist Robin's arm. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks to Gus for engineering. Uh, we're, we'll be right back.
welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. We're glad you're here today. Robin Hemley on the program. Um, we, were, we were talking a little bit about um, the, the many types of writing. Like, uh, Robin, you've done it all <laughs> and continue to do it all. It's, it ain't over yet. <laughs> do over, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned your, your mom was a writer. I, I feel like you also have said like your, your father was also a writer, mm-hmm. a family of writers. That's right. So growing up, like kind of casting, like looking back a little bit, what was it like for like young Robin? Like when you were there, were you, so you were just writing st- well, I was always around writers, you know, I was always around writers. Like my, my parents were the um, translators and my father was the editor of Isaac Bashevis Singer, the Nobel laureate. Um, and um, and he, my father had a, um, a publishing company, a really wonderful publishing company, kind of like the gray wolf of its time um, uh. called Noonday. And uh, they published a lot of Singer. He was Susan Sontag's first editor. Um, he edited a lot of great writers. So all the uh, when I was a kid, you know, we were, you know had all a lot of writers over in the house. Talk about immersion. Yeah, Robin. I mean, I didn't. I was four and five, so I I didn't have in depth chats with Susan Sontag. <laughs> I mean, you dutifully recorded. <laughs> yeah, um, but, uh, but you gave her the idea for on photography. <laughs> that I did indeed. Um, so um, no, so I I was always around writers, and my mother though was the one who sort of encouraged me to write. She would sit me down uh, at the typewriter at the time, and and uh, and I would dictate little poems to her, and uh, you know it was. It, it was just part of our. I, I remember my father was writing a, a novel, and he would read um, sections of the novel to my mother, um, and she would comment on it. And that was a that's a very early memory of mine. So I I would go around the house with a pretend sheet of paper, uh, uh, sort of imitating him. And so I think that was the the sort of first clue that I wanted to write. <laughs> That's a lovely image. <laughs> and you and and it was something that was almost the norm in your house. Like it was it was a possible life. Yeah, a lot of people struggle. I mean, of course I struggled to be a writer. It's a it's a it's a struggle regardless of whether you come from a writing family or not, but a lot of people struggle just with the decision to devote themselves to words, to literature. It's not something that's universally um, applauded by parents. Um, <laughs> any artistic decision is not, not universally applauded by parents. But you know, um, so I, I'm always uh, I always admire people who come from backgrounds where they really had to um, say, uh, "No, this is really what I want to do," even if it goes against what you want me to do. Um, I didn't have, uh, thankfully, I didn't have to deal with that. But you know the the normal struggles of being a writer were were you know things that i've I've dealt with my whole life um but my brother became an engineer you know so it wasn't a mandated oh. thing you know so he he's, and he's still the, accepted well, or, well <laughs> i'm a black sheep of the family yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> my uh, my daughters uh, unfortunately or fortunately i don't know have the the sort of more that artistic gene one of them studying opera and the other is studying musical theater and who knows? I've got two others, and who knows what they'll do? Oh, too bad we don't have some of a little of their opera we could have played. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's my daughter Olivia is a very good opera singer. Ah, uh, well, and it seems like you went from dictating those, those, those poems to your mom on the typewriter to 
writing stories. Is it is that fair to say, Robin? Like your way into like you? Did yeah. you start with stories and then? Well, I loved. I always loved these sort of fantastic stories of Kafka and and you know fairy tales and any kind of fabulism, you yes. know. And then later Borges and you know Cortazar and a lot of you know fabulous writers, you know Marquez, of course. And so. Uh, its I, own reality, yeah. In a way, and those were always the the stories that spoke to me, and so it's what I started writing too when I was maybe twelve or so. I started writing these little stories. I don't know that most of them went anywhere, but they were more sort of mood pieces, you know, of, of sort of spooky, moody, you know, adolescent. And then I start writing really bad poetry. Like everyone has to do that. Um, that's a that's a necessary phase. The rite of passage. Yeah. So I mean, I, I just and and but it, I think the yeah the writing of the bad poetry was important because I I wrote them down in a journal. Mm. I still have the journal, and I wrote I wrote them down, and I also wrote observations and and uh, same journal. Yeah, same journal. Okay. And, and the observations are great for me to read, but more than the poems because I'm I'm able to sort of get reacquainted with my adolescent self and un, and sort of see what my preoccupations were then. Did you use that journal when you were thinking about the like do over project and when you were that that you I didn't use it as like much as camp. I could have, you know. Um uh I don't I, like when I was at summer camp for uh I didn't write anything at summer camp um any um anything from at that time I wasn't writing in my journal, but um I, I think I might have used a little from my journal, but not much. Mm. Yeah. But it was. But it's interesting that you say that it gets you back to that that time, like those piece, those details, even that you were you're observing. Yeah. Yeah. You can see the the mind. Yeah, I think Joan Didion said that about reading her old journals that that it reacquainted herself with her 19 year old self. You know, and I think that that's that's one reason you you keep a journal is is it's a kind of bit of a not not a, a diary diary's a little different but with a journal it's both a kind of sketch pad but also a, a recording of your of of what what you notice at a certain age what what the observations and i think that's that's really interesting to 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 go back and look at yeah. I like reading other people's journals too. Like F. Scott Fitzgerald had some really cool journals. Um and he used to record um story ideas and of course some of them never um you know, never turned into stories. I mean there's always much more material than one gets a chance to write. But it was it's interesting to look and see well what sort of uh captivated him. Uh I remember one of the ideas he had was uh, based on a true story about a, f a film producer who, or a film director, I guess, who got stranded on a desert island with 16 rolls of unexposed film. And just so it, all this potential, but no, uh, no, no way to use, use it. And, uh, and I could see that that was a kind of fun, um, uh, little nugget for him, but I could also see why it never would develop into a story because it's sort of its own punchline, mm. you know? Yeah. It makes me think like that might be a weird exercise. Like if he's one of your favorite writers to like interact with his journal in a way where you're writing these pieces or, well, well you kind of read my mind because in, 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 
that book, Turning Life into Fiction, um, I, I actually used that that example, and I I say uh, wow. that one of the things would to do as an exercise is to take someone else's journal and do exactly that, you know, as an experiment. Because it's almost like the like Woody Guthrie songs too, like where or, right? I think didn't he have lots of um, like journals as well? Yeah, yeah. And some um, like I think Wilco and some people are yeah. I think making store like new songs using his. Oh, that's some great. Of his, that's so it's great. kind of this way of. I love that. Yeah, that's great. I love being in conversation with some an artist who is no longer around. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I think I fully approve of that. <laughs> Stamp of approval, yeah. Robin Humley. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, would you mind reading something for us so we can get? Because when we were off air, we were talking a little bit about. It seems like you like how sometimes writers like you have your antenna up. Mm. Um, and there's the the first story um, in Reply All is actually, I guess. Let me ask you this, Robin. How do how do you as a writer get your ideas? <laughs> yeah, that, that question. Okay. <laughs> um, Don't give me the stock answer. <laughs> Please. Um, well, in it, you know, it comes from all, all over. But in this case, this story is called The Warehouse of Saints. I'm not going to read the whole story, just the opening. But I got the idea uh, when I was in Croatia and um, one summer. And... Uh, a tour guide told me about a sort of lively trade in the Middle Ages of saints' relics, bones and things like that, and that there was such a trade that you know people were obviously um, f- forging or, or replicating these things or getting them from sources other than saints and black market, yeah, black market and saints relics. And, they, and, <laughs> and it was very, uh, it wasn't a respectable way to make a living in the middle ages, but it was a way to make a living. Right. And so I thought, well, that's, that's a good idea for a story. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I wrote a story called the warehouse of saints that I was also at the time though, um, a little later in the summer, I went to, uh, with my family from Croatia, we went out, we rented a little farmhouse outside of Chinon in the Loire Valley um, in France. And it tur- and Chinon turned out to be the place where Joan of Arc first presented herself to the Dauphin of... Another uh, saint presents y- Yeah, to exactly, uh, to the Dauphin um, and said, I'm you know here to lead an army against the English. <laughs> and uh, we went on a tour of the ruins of, of that, that place. And I was so impressed by the story and, and everything that I thought, okay, well, maybe I could fit Joan of Arc into this story. The same. Yeah, the same story. And so, um, uh, so, it's, so it's about uh, a father and a son. The father is very devout. The son is a little sketchy, um, who live in a tufa stone cave. That's another thing that's around that area, these, all these tufa stone caves. And uh, they live in a tufa stone cave, and uh, they have this booming business in saints relics and uh the father doesn't really understand where the relics come from but they just appear every morning uh at the the mouth of the cave and since he believes in miracles yeah exactly so um and this is where having a laptop came in handy i i uh, at this um farmhouse that i was staying at there was a tufa stone cave and so um I'd go down to the Tufa Stone Cave every morning, put a chair in there, sit in the darkness with my laptop, and write the story from uh, about 
uh, uh, that was set there. So this is the crazy writer. Yeah, but it was fun. It's like yeah. it's it's a way to uh, almost become an actor as well as a writer. And I start um, the story with a uh, an epigraph of a poet I really love uh, named Tomas Salomon, uh, a um, Slovenian poet, and it, the the uh, quote is: "Too many blessings break a man apart." Today we did inventory, my son Dominic and I, ten shin bones belonging to St. Timothy, sixteen tibias of Paul, four skulls of John the Baptist, three complete skeletons of Mary Magdalene, a jar of teeth simply labeled assorted saints, a cask of desiccated organs, thirteen livers of St. Peter, the dried tongues of Judas Iscariot, Simon, and Thomas, fingernail shavings of the great kings of France, including the entire big toenail of Richard the Lionheart, his entrails, too, the scapulas of Saints Catherine and Michael, enough true cross splinters to build a bridge from Chinon to Paris. God even sends us bones on his day of rest, and that confounds me. Are all other mortals deemed worthy enough to share in his rest except us, his bone slaves? Does it concern you, my son, that St. Peter had so many livers and Mary Magdalene so many skeletons within her? I've asked him this question and variations upon it before, but my son is clever, and I marvel at the many reasons we should revere God's contradictions. If God did not prefer the impossible to the possible and the incomprehensible to the comprehensible— he would not have bothered to give form to the firmament and breath to the earth's confounding creatures. Dominic has reminded me of the loaves and fishes, of the water into wine, of the holy trinity, of Christ's body and blood. The Jews believe the 10,000 people heard Moses at Mount Sinai, he says, combing his beard with a comb carved from the ribs of St. Bartholomew. Every Jew alive today has a piece of one of those souls commingled with his own. What the Jews believe is not what I believe, but I use this as an example. The sums of God are not our sums. I am a simple man. Such faith inspires me, though there are times I admit that I doubt the good Dominic and I do. I named my son after St. Dominic, who appeared to me in a dream and cut off his, fin his index finger and gave it to me. He said, Matthias, even the whitened bones of the saints clamor to do God's bidding. Yet it took sixteen years before the true nature of Dominic's prophecy was revealed to me. In the early years I sold herbs and potions concocted by my wife. Only after her death, when our future looked bleakest, did the bones and relics start to mysteriously appear at the mouth of our cave. Then I understood my true calling. In the two years since, Dominic and I have built our business into the largest inventory of bones and relics of saints in the Loire Valley. So, Thank you, yeah. Robin. We'll, we'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk about okay, it. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, this is today on the program. Robin Hemley is here on Living Writers. You've got WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did. We've got Robin Hemley today. Um, he's here. We just heard um, the the first story from his short story collection with Indiana University Press, Reply All. Um, <laughs> the warehouse. <laughs> the saint's bones. Um, and you sitting in a cave, Robin. Uh, so, so... So this this ability to get the voice of the character um, was that directly you said like um, sitting in the cave gave you a chance to be become almost an actor. Yeah, um, I mean that, that for the, me that was a big part of this story. I mean I've just read a, a page or two of it, but and it goes on. But um, sort of understanding first of all what point of view I was going to tell it tell it from and then just yeah, construct- why did you pick the father instead you know, of Dominic because it would have been a totally well, different story I um yeah because he would have the, because the son knew where the bones were coming from and I wanted it to be a story about faith you know I wanted it to be a, a story about even believing in the face of of all evidence to the contrary. Not to mock that, because I don't mock Matthias. I, there's something about it that's lovely, you know. And um, so while it's a kind of satirical story in some ways, it's also ultimately, I think, a fairly serious story about how, you know, the need for belief. Um, and um, so I don't know exactly how Matthias's voice came, but, I mean, I don't think it's some... Uh, miracle. <laughs> I just think it's because I've done it enough times, and I know, you know, I I figure out sort of how to maybe to create a a, a character's voice. But is it know, something where you start hearing his voice, like in the writing of it, or sometimes, is it... sometimes uh, it is. A, it's not, not. I mean, it's been a while since I wrote since I wrote that story, so I don't remember specifically that that instance. Um. But I do know that you know I try to construct a history for each of them and a, and a, and what that character wants you know what that character yearns for is part of the voice too it sort of it it, it comes out on the page hopefully and so um, so I, I wanted this fairly naive character but but somehow um, you know understandable or likable and um, so yeah I think. And then sort of fitting in all this information. I knew, of course, one difficulty about writing a story that takes place in a different time than your own is that there's a tendency to want to make it sound too authentic. Um, I've, I've, that's been a hard lesson for me to learn. That, that you know, When I first started writing and I wanted to set something in a different time, I'd study all the you know, books about that time, and I try to make everything incredibly um, accurate. Like if and, there was a primary source, you would read it to even get like the way the, the yeah, but rhythm I was of a the little, language? Or? But I was a little too stilted about it, you know, because sometimes you the research can actually overwhelm the, the imagination. Yeah, exactly. It can overwhelm the imagination. And sometimes you have to... Um, uh, you know, you have to be open enough to allow the story to progress, or the character to be to be to be the most important thing, and not necessarily just that only the sense of authenticity. I mean, authenticity is important, but I also understood that I was writing something that was artifice. So, um, so 
I have probably one or two small anachronisms in the story. I mean, certain things that that probably um, someone in the Middle Ages wouldn't say, but but for partly for the humor, I put them in anyway. And I love the humor in this. I actually had to try to. I had to keep moving back away from the microphone so that my this laughter and snorts weren't well, coming you. across in the the mic. And I think that's especially valuable because if you think about what you accomplish with this, this story, um, it is pretty serious if you're talking about faith mm. and who's going to read. I mean, maybe there's, there's a few people that are going to read about what Robin Hemley thinks about the importance of faith. Like they would, because you're a good guy. You've got lots of books, right? Yeah. But if you give it to them in a story, it's like a, another way of reaching more people, right? Or making making the question seem different Yeah, well, in its delivery, at least. And also, what I think about faith or any other subject isn't a, a static thing, you know? I mean, so in this story, this is what I think about faith, maybe, it's what this character thinks about faith. It's one way of looking at it. Um, um, mm. But I do have... Uh, so that's more freeing, too, in a way. Yeah. It's not definitive. Yeah, I do have a memoir, too, um, about my older sister, Nola, who was a diagnosed uh, schizophrenic. It's called um, Nola, A Memoir of Faith, Art, and Madness. And in that book, I really explore uh, aspects of faith. Because she was a very... Um, a spiritual person, I guess, would be the way to, to say it, and um, and and her relationship to um, to the spiritual was really intense and fraught, and was a little scary <laughs> too. And so I wrote the book partly as a a way to understand her, but also to understand her relationship to um, to faith. And so that was a different take, very different take. And and perhaps even some like a reckoning, because you have to, if that's an example in your life, sometimes that also means um, you have to confront it so that you can even figure out what your own take on it. Yeah. Faith yeah. or yeah. might be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the but the literary explorations of these things are, are always, um, I mean, you don't always feel about something the same way. If you did, you might only have to write one book and leave it at that. <laughs> um, but, you know, Emily Dickinson has this wonderful quote, um, I believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. And I think that's, a. I mean, that's sort of, uh, that's always been my approach. You that's know. your mantra. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Good old Emily. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems really, it seems like a risk to write about y your sister. Like that was a way that you as a writer, you were vulnerable too, and writing about your family. Yeah, it's a fairly, con I mean, not in a, hopefully not in a too much information way, but it's a fairly confessional book. And it deals with the whole idea of storytelling and the stories that we're allowed to tell and the stories we're not allowed to tell by our families. Because as since I did come from a family of writers, um, it's... It's, I, I include a lot of writing in it that's not mine. I mean, my sister, for instance, um, kept a, an wrote an autobiography uh, of herself, obviously, wrote an autobiography uh, in the last year of her life, um, which I didn't even know about until I started the project, and my mother gave it to me. 
my mother, um, you know, was a short story writer, but she'd write these very thinly veiled autobiographical stories in which sometimes I figured as a character and my, my sister. And I included one of those stories, Whole Cloth. Um, in the memoir. Did you comment on it? Because that oh, is a yeah. book I haven't, of yours that I haven't had a chance yeah, to no, see. Yeah, no, sure. It's, um, uh, yeah, in fact, when my mother sent uh, my sister's autobiography, my mother had tried to edit the book. And so I was fascinated by wow. my mother's edits. You saw both, so you yeah. could see it. So I actually um, included my mother's edits um, in the book. And now, is that something you're allowed to do, talking about what you are allowed to tell and not tell? Well, I mean, in, I mean, there's negotiations that you have to make with your family members. If you're, you know, but she sent it to me. You know, I wouldn't have even known about it had she not sent had she not um, sent it. And um, so, uh, so in any case. It was uh, something that I, um, that, yeah, it was fraught. It was a very difficult book to write because my mother didn't want me to write it at first. And so we had to negotiate about it. Even though she was a writer, she felt like, well, let's just make it fiction. And I said, no, I think I want to write about this without that veil of fiction. And, and why? Um, because it seemed that that sense of, being a what you know this whole notion of of families trying to preserve myths about themselves and even say that they're uh you know keep the skeletons in the closet and and try to have this idea of the perfect family that i i sometimes think that's a rather harmful thing to to put forth to kids and to to uh to people in the family and so i think uh it was very helpful to me not that i was writing it purely for therapeutic reasons, but it was helpful for me to sort of examine my family's relationship to stories and truth, and um, and 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 I needed to do it as an investigation, a kind of archaeological dig uh, into myself and my family and who my sister was and who I was at, around the time she died and who I had become since then. And I felt that I couldn't really explore that in a, in, through fiction and do it justice. You just, yes, you know somehow, like with a like this, and it's hard to talk about. Like I almost said, because it's not like it's a project. This is something like it's. Well, it it's, is a project. I mean, but, I, it's, it's, I wrote it twenty years after she died. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that you. Um, you have to gain some distance from it because the ultimate object is not to write something um, for, not to write something simply for therapeutic reasons. I'm, I don't think that that's a bad thing, but I, I do want to write something that hopefully has some artistic merit too. Mm -hmm. And so the shape, the language, all of that's important as well. So it is a project, and I think it's important for me and for others to see that so that it's it's a book uh, that is is about this family but is about a family that sort of put art first and so it's got to be a kind of artistic project as well yeah and it's separate yeah from like that because the thing is stories don't feel separate sometimes they feel like they are what we are because we are our stories in some way so but this, this it was is difficult to write i mean it's i'm not saying you know it was very difficult it was one of the most 
emotionally difficult things I ever wrote. But now that, you know, when people read it and they think, oh, this is me, it's me circa, you know, 12 years ago, sort of, you know. But people change and things, circumstances change, and you can't completely capture who anyone is in a book, you know. But this, for me, was as close to uh, the 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 most I was able to a- approach sort of reconstructing my sister, and I couldn't do that through fiction. Yeah. yeah. And this is the, there's justice in this. Well, way. I hope so. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's so interesting it, it, to hear you say that, Robin, too, because of this, because of some of your other, like, the, the practices and, and, um, of t- like turning life into fiction mm-hmm. of a book like, like like so so thank you thanks thank you. for thinking about yeah this is great we're going to take a short break we'll be right back okay. um with more with robin hemley you've got living writers i'm t hetzel right back Welcome back. You've got Living Writers today. Robin Hemley is here. Um, well, we've been talking about fiction, nonfiction, poems, everything. Now, let's Let's talk about, you've got another book out this year, because uh, we just heard earlier in the program from Reply All, your story collection, and now there's also a field guide for immersion writing, um, and this is out with the University of Georgia Press, and thanks again to Amanda Sharp for sending me the book. It's it's a lovely book. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, oh, it is lovely. I like the way it looks, the cover. Like the design yeah. with, with the suitcase, the greens, yeah. and it's it, an odd angle. Yeah. Um, so this immersion writing, mm-hmm. um, I love I love the voice. As you begin this book, I'm thinking I want to use parts of this for teaching, too, <laughs> um, because the voice in this you on the page, the you that narrating um, the beginning gives this wonderful defensive, like you feel like you have to fight for memoir, like mm-hmm. memoir. You even yeah. kind of jokingly say, and it's, um, so what, what is this immersion writing? Cause I feel like that might be what a, a term you coined in a sense or, well, or carving out yeah. territory here. Well, I didn't actually coin immersion itself. Um, the, <laughs> Just looked uh, it. <laughs> there's, um, for a long time, there's been a, a, a kind of writing called immersion journalism and, uh, it's pioneered, um, you know, by, by, uh, people like George Plimpton, who um, joined the Detroit Lions for uh, a, a, a couple games of scrimmage, really, and uh, <laughs> you know got completely pummeled and wrote a wonderful book about it, sort of as the everyman uh, who wants, who thinks I could do better if I were, you know, a football player. It's a wonderful book. I, I, it's really delightful. And there are a lot of immersion journalists: Barbara Ehrenreich, you know, nickel and dimed. Um, uh, you know Ted Conover, who uh, wrote one called New Jack City, where he was a uh, a guard, a prison guard at Sing Sing for a year. Um, so it, the immersion journalist uses 
um, the self to write about the larger world. That is, um, the in this wonderful um, phrase of the writer Gay Talis, uh, that that kind of writer wears himself or herself lightly. That is, it's not a book really about the writer's travails or growing up or, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. It's a, it, the writer becomes a stand-in, you know, a, a viewfinder for, the yeah, the eye. So, um, so that's one kind of writing. But I wrote this book, you know, Do-Over. And in Do-Over, um, I was going back to things that I had either failed at or had been embarrassed by when I was a child. I, I um, I went back to summer camp and bunked with a bunch of 10-year-olds for a week. And that was the genesis of the idea, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. Yeah, Robin? Yeah. That, and, and you pitched it to the New York To magazine. New York Magazine, yeah. It was this summer camp thing. And then I did about 10 of these do-overs, including go- I uh, found uh, this woman who I'd had a crush on when I was 16, and I was too embarrassed or shy to ask her to the prom the first time. So I asked her to the prom Um you know, 30 years later, and and she said, well, I have to ask my husband, and she, uh, he said, okay, and I asked my wife, and that was okay, so we, so, and I, I also was in a play where I flubbed a line when I was seven, The Littlest Angel, and I found a group in Marietta, Georgia, putting it on, and, and, um, and they let me reprise my role as the heavenly messenger, and, uh, <laughs> And so um, I, someone asked me, what is this that you're, you're doing? What do you call it? And I said, well, it's immersion memoir. Um, as a po- And that's a ta- ter- term that I coined. Um, um, not that I really care that I coined it, but I did. Um, uh, but it's, <laughs> Everybody it, throw your coins <laughs> yeah, this way. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, but, it's, um, but yeah, immersion memoir uh, is different from immersion journalism in that it's the opposite. Instead of the... Uh, writer using the self to write about the world, the writer uses the world as a conduit for writing about the self. So out in the world, you know, and there are books like Not Only Mine, but Yes Man, uh, and also um, A.J. Jacobs does a, a number of these, you know, The Year of Living Biblically, where he lived by the all of the Bible's precepts for a year, you know, including not and you know not wearing clothing of mixed fibers and uh stoning adulterers and things like that that was a little difficult but he um uh i don't know, know why i'm laughing oh, while you're a, saying this well it was a funny book it was a funny idea so um so i wrote this so i decided well what are the forms of immersion writing and so the immersion journalism immersion memoir and then what other kind of a book, um, project gets you out in the world, of course, travel writing. Literally, yeah. yes. So I, I wrote a book because I didn't know there, was, there wasn't there was a book like it, a book that's both a compendium of other people's books about immersion and also a, a kind of how-to book, but more of a meditation, and that's what a field guide for immersion writing is. And and so what have you, what sort of response have you got from it so far, Robin? Well, it's it's been... Because it's positive. out since March, right? Is yeah, right? I, I I know a number of universities where people have been adopting it because it's kind of a ready-made book for a class in some ways, you know, because it's it's divided up into journalism, memoir, and travel. And as I said, there's not a book out there that does that. Did and, you did you like do a pilot class or so? I like did. Do you teach this at Iowa? I and, did. I taught an honors seminar to some undergraduates. Uh, and it was really interesting because I saw 
you know, the the problems, the pitfalls of teaching a class like this. The, I mean, it was great for me to do, but I understood that, that there were some assignments that I could that I couldn't allow them to do for their own safety. You know, <laughs> you know that they want. They came up with these ideas, and they were so enthusiastic, and some of them were just wonderful. And a couple of them were a little sketchy, and I had to say, no, you know, you can't do that because, you know, you're, you, there's there's real... It's ch- illegal? No. Yeah, well, that too. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, it can't, with all of these things, it can't just be a gimmick. You know, I, there has to be some emotional that seems like investment. What, that, how do you get that, that in the project in such a short time i wonder yeah well it's hard i mean you have to it has to be a semester long project you know and it's not something you can just sort of dip in and out of and some of the students in this class um developed uh really interesting you know friendships with some of the people who they uh they encountered you know as a result of their immersion projects and 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 commitments to um uh, to other people for instance you know people who um, you know, had uh, kind of disabilities or whatever. You know, whatever there was, there were some community projects that people did that that had uh, long lasting, I think, positive impacts on their lives. I hope writing can change the world. Of course, yeah. right? Yeah. You're writing in the Philippines. You can lift the book tax now, and then teaching your students to to ask some serious questions and to not be afraid to get closer to the subject. Sub, or as a person, or or as a yeah. I mean, I don't think that that's absolutely. I mean, I I don't try in that sort of grandiose way to change the world with everything I'm writing because that would be you know because that would be really too much to ask you know. But I mean, I think it's fine to write a quiet little story too, or a quiet little poem that doesn't change anything except for the experience of the reader while he or she's reading it. I'm sure you agree. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm nodding. <laughs> the, the quiet ascent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, Robin, um, what what are you going to immerse yourself in next? Um, right now, I'm working on a novel. Oh, unless you're writing it, and then I don't want you to release any of the energy. <laughs> well, I can say I'm working on a novel. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, that's what I'm working on, a novel, and I'm... Uh, and it's set in the Philippines, and that's pretty much all I can say. But it's it's um, uh, it's definitely been obsessing me, and uh, you know I've been I you know been writing on writing on it very obsessively uh, even this morning in the hotel room and on the plane and all of that. Yeah, because you said you left four a.m. this morning. Yeah, yeah, I did, and um, you know I and it's it's a book that I'm I'm on my second draft of it right now, and it's been. Uh, sort of taking up most of my headspace. <laughs> and is it, do you find yourself gravitating towards like a, like this novel is so different than writing a field guide, mm-hmm. right? And trying to, to, uh, or, or the, the shorter mm-hmm. stories of, so is it something that you feel like it's time to do the not, like it's something you need as a writer, like another. Well, or, I have written one other novel, um, called The Last Studebaker. It came out quite a while ago. It's just been reissued by Indiana University Press. Grey Wolf put it out first, right? Yeah, Grey Wolf put it out, yeah. Okay. And so so anyway, um, I just went on to other things. And the book was fine. It was well-reviewed and all of that. But now I just feel like, you know, I, I, I really wanted to get back to the novel because I remembered 
really loving being in the middle of it and having this world that I had created and sort of inhabiting that um, and being obsessed by that. And it took me a while to get to that point, but I think I'm there again. And I, 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 I'm kind of sorry that I took so long to get back to this kind of project, but, uh, but you know, I hope I can write a few more. That's the thing with writing too, isn't it? Cause there's, because it is when you're obsessed with something, it, it it's the reality of it is it takes time. And then there's other things like you, it's good to have that longing though, like that wish mm. that you had been back to it. And maybe that means another novel is pressing on its heels. Oh, it, one is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Definitely. And is this a way also because it happens to be set in the, the Philippines, like that's an experience you lived mm-hmm. as well and wrote about in other ways. Um, right. And it, this, this, story while it or the the novel while it involves some of my experiences the character is very mostly different from me and uh and the sort of the, the main experiences are those of someone i met there uh, uh of someone who worked in the US embassy and so i was really captivated by his story and so i wanted to so that that sort of became the the kernel the germ for this one. And so it's like, pay attention to what captivates you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Robin Hemley. This has been a great hour. Thanks very much for having me. Come back. Enjoyed it. Come back anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Today on the program, Robin Hemley has been here. Um, His book, you can go, go out and grab reply all a collection of short stories or a field guide for immersion writing. That's right. Immersion memoir. You heard it here on living writers. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Gus for engineering. Um, And thanks for listening out there until next time. I'm T Hetzel. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, January 9th, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, the Supreme Court hears a case on how far police can go to test drivers suspected of drunk driving. Privacy advocates say a warrantless blood test is too invasive. In Texas, a 15-year-old's case challenging a school program that requires students to carry an electronic tracking chip draws religious and privacy concerns. In Mexico, small farmers and environmentalists call on the government to block large-scale genetically modified corn. And we'll go to Kurdistan, where hundreds of Syrian refugees are arriving every day and many struggle to get by. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. There's speculation today the White House is considering hosting a climate summit during Obama's second term. An Oregon environmental group told The Guardian it has had encouraging discussions with White House staff on the issue. The speculation comes on the heels of EPA head Lisa Jackson's resignation in late December and a new report out yesterday by NOAA. 
The National Climatic Data Center says 2012 was the warmest year on record in the contiguous 48 states. The data also indicates extreme weather events such as flooding and droughts are becoming more common. FSRN's James Moore reports from KRUU-FM in Iowa, one of several Midwest states where temperatures were far above normal. Last year was Iowa's warmest since 1931, the dawn of the Dust Bowl era. And as during the Dust Bowl, much of the Midwest experienced severe rain shortages. Here, the worst drought in 50 years killed trees in cities across the state, and corn yields are expected to be down for the fourth straight year. Low water levels on the Mississippi and other Midwest rivers are creating significant challenges for barges trying to move grain to the Gulf. Iowa State University climatologist Elwin Taylor, who has studied agricultural climates for decades, has cautioned farmers and river shippers to get used to more volatile weather. Taylor believes nighttime temperatures are the key climate threat for farm economies. According to research, when overnight temperatures rise 4 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, grain crop yields are reduced by 15 to 20 percent. In 2012, 19 states experienced their warmest years since data began being collected in 1895. James Moore, FSRN, Fairfield, Iowa. A new legislative session begins today in Illinois, and LGBT rights supporters say they intend to reintroduce same-sex marriage legislation before day's end. Lawmakers were unable to garner enough support for the measure during the previous session, which ended yesterday. But before the turnover, the General Assembly was able to pass a law allowing undocumented immigrants to get state driver's licenses. Governor Pat Quinn has praised lawmakers for saving lives on Illinois roads by mandating driver 